Welcome to the Post-Pandemic Order podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. My name is Suda David-Wilp, and I'm sitting in for Rachel Tausenfreund, who is currently exploring the German coastline during summer vacation. I'm thrilled to speak with Representative Lauren Underwood from the great state of Illinois. She's the youngest African-American woman ever to be elected to the House of Representatives. She campaigned in 2018 on a platform of fighting for families, ending gun violence, and creating economic opportunity for all, including access to quality health care. The Congresswoman is a registered nurse, and before winning the Republican seat outside of Chicago, she worked with the Medicaid plan to ensure that it provided high-quality, cost-efficient care. Prior to that, she served in the Obama administration and the Department of Health and Human Services. She serves on the House Committee on Education and Labor, the Committee on Veterans Affairs, and is the vice chair of the House Committee on Homeland Security. She also serves on the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee. Representative Underwood is also a member of the Future Forum, a group of young Democratic members of Congress committed to listening to and standing up for the next generation of Americans. Congressman Underwood is also a member of the Congressional Black Caucus and the LGBT Equality Caucus. Like the trailblazer before her, she vows to be unbought and unbossed like Shirley Chisholm. I think that a lot of people are used to looking at Washington and trying to break things down along partisan lines. Race, racism, white supremacy, Black Lives Matter, you know, these are not partisan issues. These are American issues. Congresswoman Underwood, thanks for taking the time to be with GMF's post-pandemic order podcast. So the official fireworks and parades were scarce this 4th of July weekend as our country faces unprecedented challenges all at the same time, a health pandemic, economic upheaval, and social unrest. Surely some must have had the state of our democracy on their minds this 4th of July. You know, but for Black Americans, it wasn't probably the first time wrestling with the idea of America and what it stands for. How do you think Black Americans reflected on their patriotism this past 4th of July? Well, you know, it's so interesting. Our country has been battling with race and racism and white supremacy for over 400 years. And so, you know, while this may be a new conversation for this generation of Americans, you know, as a Black community, we have openly discuss so many of these issues for years and years and generations and generations. And so, you know, I think that this July 4th season was um, interesting because it was on the heels of like the largest Juneteenth celebration across this country that I've certainly ever seen and probably the data will show in probably a few generations. And the idea of what does freedom and liberty and justice for all, what does that mean for everybody? I think that, you know, for African-Americans, we're real clear that there is room to, to grow and opportunities for improvement to reach that highest ideal and promise that we have all supposedly committed ourselves to. But I think that for many Americans across the country, this is probably a different type of Fourth of July. You know, I, I think that the celebrations look different for everybody. I think that there were some cookouts. <laughs> I think that there were some neighborhood fireworks. And, you know, I think that we are, I will speak for myself, I'm very encouraged by the progress that we have seen happen before our eyes over the last 
six weeks or so. And I am very, very, very optimistic for the future. On that note, I mean, it sounds like you think we've sort of arrived at a moment that will allow us to tackle um, remaining systemic racism in our country. I mean, did you ever think that two thirds of Americans would embrace the Black Lives Matter movement and that the Mississippi state flag would be changed? Uh, If you had told me, Suda, six months ago that we would be in this place where there would be the removal of physical markers and celebrations of the Confederacy, that we would be seeing companies like trip over themselves to try to make these grand (laughs) displays of how woke they are. We have these anti-racist book clubs and, you know, books that are just surging up the bestseller list as, you know, the American people try to identify their own role in the racism that has played our country and our society for centuries. And I think that that's really positive. I mean, I don't know that we're in a moment where we can tackle the racism in our country if we don't have buy-in from the leaders of our country. And at this point in time, we have a president that is seeking to divide our country along racial lines. And so obviously the American people are in a much different place than the president and his administration. But when I think about systemic racism, that means racism that is embedded in every single aspect of our society, every single policy and every single structure within our society has That's what systemic means, right? I don't know that we can truly make meaningful steps forward in a way that will be sustainable if we do not have a complete commitment from the leaders in our communities, in our states, and in our country. And, you know, from my vantage point at the federal level, we do not have that kind of buy-in from the president. I mean, the president does not share values with us. I would say the president doesn't share values with the American people on this issue, and that's a dangerous place for him to be. Are you hopeful with your some of your Republican colleagues across the aisle? Oh, absolutely. Because, listen, you know, a lot of people were raised in communities that didn't have a lot of diversity. A lot of people are unfamiliar with the concepts of privilege, unfamiliar with the concepts of white supremacy. But they are awesome human beings and care about their neighbors and have a moral compass that points north, you know, and they want to do the right thing and they are open. And this level of openness has nothing to do with partisanship, right? So I think that a lot of people are used to looking at Washington and trying to break things down along partisan lines. And I think that as we discuss these topics, race, racism, white supremacy, Black Lives Matter, you know, these are not partisan issues. These are American issues. And so you asked about patriotism earlier. And I think that to be a patriot, you have to love our country, warts and all, and seek to make her better every day. And that is a mission that crosses party lines. And we are united as we pledge allegiance to this country and seek to make her better. Yeah. And I mean, look at your class. It's, you know, the midterm election in 2018 really brought one of the most diverse classes to Congress. And you, as the youngest African-American women to be elected to the House, I mean, you mentioned this a little bit before, but how do you see race relations from your generational um, point of view? Do you sense a difference when it comes to addressing civil rights today? Well, I do because, you know, my generation, so I'm 33 years old. I went to high school in the early 2000s, right? So, you know, our generations, when we think civil rights, there is a racial component 
that I would say emerged in speaking for myself, like my 20s. But prior to that, there was the LGBTQ movement and making sure that folks had their full civil rights, right? The right to marry, legal partnerships. That's what started out, you know, even the words that we used and how that changed so rapidly over time. And so I think for our generation, for millennials, we see things so, I think, starkly in recognizing the injustice and the racism, and we're willing to call it by its name. You know, we're willing to say, this is not who we are and we should be better than this. And we're willing to make decisions, whether it's like financial decisions as consumers, you know, affiliation decisions like your employer or your educational institution, right? Like we will let our values lead us. And I think that that is a little bit different than what I see out of other generations. Other generations will say, well, you know, this institution has a legacy of, you know, sort of kind of racist, right? Like, oh, you know, you're letting your homophobia show, but, (laughs) and then they sort of like compromise and end up doing business with them or working for them. I think millennials are like, nah, dog, (laughs) this is not for us. And uh, we will go and do something else. I, you know, I laugh with you, Congresswoman, but I'm not of your generation. I'm the 1989 generation. And I think it's true. I mean, you and your cohort has been affected by 2008 mm-hmm. with that financial crisis. And now you see the global pandemic and how it's affecting American society. I mean, you're a trained nurse and you're an expert on healthcare. Not only the financial crisis, but now today with this pandemic, I mean, what do you think is revealed about American society? Well, I mean, that the inequalities run deep. You know, the the conversation about racial disparities connected with COVID-19 deaths and diagnoses and infection rates, the disparity was first illuminated along race and ethnicity lines, and it shocked the country. It shocked the country because the city of Chicago, the state of Illinois, were brave enough, right, committed enough public health leaders to release information in that way, which showed stark disparities. And just yesterday, you know, the New York Times released a report that they had to sue the Trump administration in order to get the full data set from across the country that showed deep disparities uh, among Native populations, right? The Navajo Nation has the most COVID cases per capita in the whole country, um, and they have virtually no (laughs) uh, federal support. I mean, virtually, as compared to some other communities, right? Uh, African-Americans and Latinx communities continue to share an undue burden of disease and death. And it's not because there's something wrong with these communities of color or the way they move around the world. It's that people are more likely to be essential workers. And as essential workers, four months into this crisis, they are still denied full PPE, in neighborhoods, because we have residential segregation still in this country, in you know neighborhoods that are filled with different communities of color, there is a striking lack of testing. You know, we still do not have free COVID treatment in this country. And so, you know, when I think about what the pandemic has revealed about America, is that we have like deeply rooted inequality that is pervasive in our economy, in our healthcare, and in the way that individuals may move around the same metropolitan area. And for our leaders in this country to not recognize, anticipate, call it by its name, run after, like run towards the problem to try to solve it immediately 
it's disgraceful. And at this point, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of senseless infections, despair, and death due to COVID-19, which is, it just is deeply disturbing and it literally haunts me. Yeah, it is amazing how quickly the pandemic, mean, sitting here in Europe, a lot of people have told me that they were afraid that the pandemic would also, you know, eventually uh, yield social unrest in America. And they're right. And who would have thought that it would have been sort of George Floyd that, the you know, the horrible murder of him that would have sparked this social unrest because it was a powder keg even before, right, with the economic distress that America is facing. But this has now turned into sort of a transatlantic conversation mm-hmm. about equality. What ha- started in America has also reached this side of the Atlantic. What message would you give to people of color in Europe that are fighting for equality? Well, you know, there are shared struggles between the United States and, you know, our European neighbors, friends, and allies. And, you know, the racial struggles, you know, the ethnic backgrounds, the segregation in our communities are common themes, uh, whether you're in, you know, New York or Chicago, or you're in London or Paris. And, you know, I think that as we all seek to have a more just and equitable society, you know, we have to, again, like run towards these problems. So, you know, I understand that there's no European wide, like, right, like no EU wide data availability on how many people experience unequal treatment because of their race and ethnicity, right? And that takes me back like 20 years into the U.S. healthcare system when there is a landmark report from the Institute of Medicine called Unequal Treatment that really mobilized the biomedical community to say, you know, if we're going to be serious about addressing health disparities, we need to be able to define and name and tackle this problem, right? It sounds like, you know, our European partners still might have a little bit of a ways to go for that type of, you know, regional approach that it's my understanding that folks want to take, right? So there's 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 room for growth there. And, you know, we have to be able to accurately trace racial and ethnic disparities and data in order to yield equity. If you can't, if you can't trace it, then you know, you can't say that we're making progress, for example. And quite frankly, when we're talking about a global pandemic, we need that data from our European partners in order to, you know, benchmark the US against it, right? Like, I think it's really important to all of our shared goals, which is to contain COVID-19, to quickly develop a vaccine, and to, you know, enable all of our economies, all of our families, and all of our communities to recover. Congresswoman, it's great that you have a scientific background. You're like uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel over here in Germany. Oh my god! Data, data-driven so decisions. Yes. <laughs> you know, thank you so much for your time. All the best, and you know, we hope that next year for the Fourth of July that we can all get together and have our barbecues with our families and friends, and that we're over this. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Sarah. It's nice to see you. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.